Good morning, friends. It's great to see you. Find Joshua chapter 7, if you would. Joshua chapter 7. And uh, on behalf of Kay and I, I, I cannot thank you enough for the way that you guys loved on us this past week and the honor that you showed to us and the admiration. It, it really was overwhelming um, just the way that you have treated us and, and thanked us for being here for 25 years. It, I don't really have the words and there's no way I would have the time to thank each and every one of you the way I would like to. So please accept my thanks and Kay's thanks. We absolutely love this church and we're, we're excited to continue to serve. Now it's time to roll up our sleeves and get back to work. So we're going to do that. Joshua 7. So I'm getting older. When I was younger, there was this, this television show, uh, a weekend television show called ABC Wide World of Sports. Anybody remember that? You that old? Okay, a few. And the guys would show up with these mustard yellow jackets and they would just, you know, do sports casting uh, over all kinds of sports all over the world. It's fascinating, especially sports I was unfamiliar with. And in and, and the beginning, they always had this, this running loop of, of sports events and athletes. And they had this tagline, uh, every show that began with the thrill of victory and the what? The agony of defeat. And they would always have, you know, a scene of some team being victorious. But the agony of defeat was always a skier. And the skier would be like going on this, this huge jump, you know, and, he's, and he just crashes and he's burning, tumbling, crashing into the wall. And I thought that was the most amazing thing, which looking back, that was very sordid as a kid to enjoy that. But it was, it, 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 it was this graphic display of, of defeat. And when we studied Joshua 6 last week, and now we're in Joshua 7 this week, this is the same storyline. Because last week we, we saw because of the faithful obedience of Joshua and the faithful obedience of Rahab the prostitute, the thrill of victory. And the walls of Jericho came crashing down and the Israelites poured into the city and conquered it without even having to lift a sword. And it was amazing. And we go from seeing the victory due to faithful obedience to this week where we will see the agony of defeat due to unfaithful disobedience. And so if you're visiting, you know, last week would have been a little bit more happy-spirited in the sermon, but I'm glad you're here because I have to, I have to be honest with our sin this week. We've got to deal with the, the sobering fact that your sin is still present in your life and at times it causes defeat in your life. So I, I need for you just to think about what defeat feels like. And some of you, you would say, well, I could write a whole book on what defeat feels like. What does failure feel like? And if you haven't experienced it, you will because we live in a fallen world. And one of the things that we're learning in our study in Joshua is we're going to have armies and battles. And we're learning that the enemy is never another person. The enemy is never really people. The enemy is always the spiritual battle that's taking place. And throughout Joshua, it's just going to keep boiling down to the fact, are they going to align their hearts 
with the God of Israel or not. No matter how strong or powerful or how able you are, it's just where's your heart aligned? And, and when, when we don't align our hearts with the Lord and, and when we allow the sin that is within us to take over, then we're going to experience defeat. It is always the case, always, that your biggest enemy is you. It's always the case that the biggest enemy that you have is living inside your heart. The Bible calls it indwelling sin. And it is an absolute monster. And it will have you and it will destroy you if you allow it. And it is dealing with indwelling sin rightly, taking on the real battle that we see in the pages of Scripture. Sometimes there's victory and, and sometimes there's not. And this morning we, we have to look at the feeling and the experience of defeat. Tonight is the Super Bowl, and at the end of the Super Bowl, whatever team wins, the cameras are going to be, you know, all these shots about the players, and they're going to be so happy, and their heads are lifted up, and they're going to be celebrating, and they're going to be joyful. And every once in a while, the camera will scan to the team that has just been defeated. And their heads will be down. They won't be joyful, even though they've had a great season, because in that moment, they will experience defeat. They failed at the task. Now they've got to live in that. And that's where we find ourselves in, in Joshua 7. Actually, if I could, just Joshua 6 and verse 18. Remember, <clears throat> just before Joshua tells the Israelite army, take the Ark of the Covenant, flank it, and go march around the walls of Jericho seven times, there was some clear instruction given is that when the walls crash down and you come pouring in, you need to destroy everything that's breathing. But then as you're making your way through the rubble, collect everything precious, gold, silver, precious metals, but you must not keep it for yourself. That belongs to the Lord and is to be placed in the Lord's treasury. Chapter six, verse 18, but keep yourselves from the things set apart or you will be set apart for destruction. Keep yourselves from the things that belong to me, the things that have been set apart for me. If you don't, you'll be set apart for destruction. And what is always physical in the Old Testament is spiritual in the New Testament. If you do not keep yourselves set apart from the indwelling sin, it will destroy you. If you allow your sin to take on the lusts and the desires that you have, then you'll be set apart for destruction. But here, the story, if you recall, the Israelites march around, they shout, boom, the walls of Jericho fall down. They rush in, kill everything that's breathing except for faithful Rahab and her family. They're collecting all of the goods. And now, and now, as the children of Israel are there encamped at Gilgal, uh, all they see, the once beautiful, massive walls of Jericho is just now a pile of burning rubble. And, and Joshua pronounces a, a curse <laughs> upon uh, Jericho. And he says, the man who undertakes the rebuilding of this city, Jericho, is cursed before the Lord. 
He will lay its foundation at the cost of his firstborn. And he will finish its gates at the cost of his youngest. It's, it's very similar, right? There's a parallel between what has been taking place with Joshua and the children of Israel crossing over the Jordan River into the promised land and Moses when he took the children of Israel who were slaves and they crossed over the Red Sea and they made their way to Sinai and during that time there was a curse of plagues upon the Egyptians ending with the death of the firstborn son and now Joshua is saying anyone who tries to rebuild Jericho it will cost that man his firstborn son and ironically and amazingly 500 years later and you got to go to the book of first kings to see this during the reign of a very wicked king of Israel named Ahab you remember old wicked Ahab who hated Elijah one of his commanders who was looking around the nation of Israel and, and he sees Jericho and he goes, you know what? That's a prime piece of real estate. Someone actually needs to make, turn that thing into a prophet and rebuild a city there, forgetting the curse that Joshua had placed on it 500 years earlier. He rebuilds Jericho, but in doing so, his son dies. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises, and sometimes those promises hurt when God keeps them, especially when we fail to be obedient. So now, verse 27 of chapter 6, it ends by saying, and the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. So in this moment, the thrill of victory. Now all of the other tribal nations of the Canaanites were terrified of the Israelites. So that's where we leave chapter 6, and now we get to chapter 7, verse 1. The Israelites, however, were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. So remember, faithful obedience leads to blessings and victory. Unfaithful disobedience leads to defeat and there was unfaithfulness in the camp of Israel now here's what's amazing it was just one guy one Israelite soldier who was unfaithful and disobedient and his name was Achan he was the son of Carmi who was the son of Zabdi who was the son of Zerah who came from the tribe of Judah and what Achan did is he took some of what was set apart he stole some things that belonged to the Lord. And the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. Yes, God hates it when you sin and his anger burns when you sin. Now, that's the God of the Bible. That's my God. Hates it when you sin. His anger burns when you sin. We see this happening against Achan. All right, so now, Joshua didn't know anything about this. He's just had this glorious defeat, and now he knows, as the leader of God's army, that his job is to conquer the promised land. And he has a, a brilliant mil military strategy to do this. So he's going to take the land of Canaan, which is divided up into all these tribal nations, and he's going to take his massive Israelite army, and he's just going to cut right through the middle, right, from the river to the sea, from the eastern part of the Jordan River 
all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. He's going to take his army and split the middle of Canaan. And then he's going to divide the nations so they can't help each other. Then he's going to go and attack the north. And then he's going to go attack the south. And once he's conquered everything, they will just inhabit the land that has been promised to them. Right? So Jericho was the first major city right in the middle. Jericho has been conquered. And now Joshua says, sends his scouts to the next city, which is not really a city at all. Basically, it's this little tiny village called Ai. It's just 10 miles further west from Jericho. And it, it literally was this tiny little village. They didn't even have a walled city. It wasn't fortified at all. And so Joshua sends some of his scouts to Ai. And they come back a few days later and they're like, okay, this is a piece of cake. I mean, this is going to take just a, a minute for us to conquer this place. There's only a few hundred men. They don't have a big army. It's a pretty small. We should just be able to go in, route this place, and then move on. Matter of fact, Joshua, you don't even need to send the full army. A couple of regiments. I mean, if you really want to scare them, a couple thousand guys, this is going to be a piece of cake. Just, just go ahead and do it. Now, they didn't seek the Lord. There was no time before the uh, ark pleading with God. Joshua just assumed that, that everything would be according to the scout's plan. And so he just sends in a few thousand troops. And here's what happens. Verse 4. So about 3,000 men went up there. But they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of them and then chased them to the outside of the city gate to the quarry, striking them down on the descent. And as a result, the people of Israel lost heart. Which is the very same language that Joshua used of the Canaanite kings and their nations who had lost heart once the Israelites crossed the Jordan. They looked at this massive army and they lost heart. But now the Israelites, like unbelievers, they lost heart. They, they had failed to be faithful and obedient. They had failed to trust and obey. And in, in that moment, the massive army of Israel and its commander, Joshua, went from victory to utter humiliation. And Joshua went from being a national hero to an embarrassed leader. They went from victory to utter defeat. And it's AI. That, that would be like whoever wins the Super Bowl tonight. And by the way, I got no, I got no dog in this hunt. I hope it's a good game. I, I hope it's a good defensive battle. I hope the commercials are funny but not immoral. And I really hope the biggest win would be as few possible camera shots at Taylor Swift. That would be a win for the Super Bowl because it's just ridiculous. Is there nothing sacred anymore? That's my hope. But, but imagine whatever team won to wins tonight and they've just defeated the next best team. Imagine then next week that NFL Super Bowl team has to play Roseville High School football team. And Roseville High School football team crushes them. That, that's basically... The difference between winning Jericho, defeating Jericho, and then, and then losing to Ai. And Joshua, like he didn't even know what to do. 
utterly humiliated and he felt defeat. But you know what defeat feels like, right? Just You just feel so lost in it and you just become unsure and you just start questioning. And you experience failure. And when you dwell in failure, it leads to fear. Defeat leading to failure and failure leading to fear. And I've hated those moments in my life. And then here's Joshua. Honestly, Joshua in this moment is at the lowest point of his life that we'll read in the scriptures. Joshua had forgot something that is so vitally true. Is that you are just as dependent on God when you are experiencing victory as you are when you experience defeat. When you are at the happiest moments in your life, you are just as dependent upon a sovereign God as when you are in your worst moments in life. It tends to be only in the worst moments that you're going to God and you're praying and you're pleading. And in the best moments, you're just enjoying it. You are just as dependent upon God when you're on the mountain as you are in the valley. And Joshua forgot that. But now he's experiencing the failure of defeat. In verse 6, Joshua, in a sign of grief, as if he has lost a loved one, he tears his clothes and, and he fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until the evening, as did all the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And this was all appropriate. <laughs> Defeat and failure, and Joshua goes to the Lord, right? The ark of the covenant is the presence of God. He goes to the very presence of God, and in the presence of God, he just bows his face down and orders his commanding officers to do the same. And they put dust on their heads. We've been defeated. We are failures. We are distraught. He's there pleading with the Lord. And now, now we see Joshua's lament, verse 7. O Lord God, Joshua said, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? If only we had been content to remain on, on the other side of the Jordan as Here's the irony. Now Joshua is talking like the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. Remember? And how they would complain to Moses and say, Moses, why did you bring us out here in the wilderness? We were so much happier when we were slaves in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here just, just for God to be humiliated for our destruction? Here's Joshua. He's doing the same game. He's playing the same game. Lord, why? Why didn't you leave us in the wilderness where, where we could be happy and content? Why did you bring us to this land flowing with milk and honey? Why, why did you do that? Because all that's going to happen now is, is these, these Amorite kings and these Canaanite kings are going to all rally together and they're going to wipe your people off the face of the earth. And then you're going to be embarrassed, God. Now, okay, look. It's okay to lament, right? There's, there's lots of opportunities in the Bible to lament. What does that mean? That means when you're, when you're feeling crushed by the burden of sin, when you're feeling the weight of your consequences, when you're just really struggling, you go to the Lord. You go to the Lord. You lament. You pour out your heart to God. 
It's, it's important at times to lament. We all need it. We all experience defeat and failure. But you are never, ever allowed to remain in lament. Because once you lament, then you praise. Then you praise. If you look at the Bible, especially the Psalms, as David is lamenting, he doesn't leave himself there. He always ends up praising because in the end, in the midst of his lament, he begins to recall the promises of God. And when you are lamenting and you're going before the Lord, that's fine. Plead with the Lord, but don't stay there. Because at some point in time, you need to begin to claim the promises of God. At some point, Joshua should have said, God, I am so afraid that now, because of our failure, our enemies are going to conquer us. But, but I remember that you promised that this land would be ours. You gave this land to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. You promised us this land. Father, I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know what this looks like. I am just afraid right now. I'm fearful and I feel nothing but failure, but I claim your promise. Lament must lead to praise because of the promises of God. Will you remember that? And, and we, are, we are here at the low point of Joshua's life. And as he's lamenting, at verse 10, the Lord speaks to him. I love this. And he says, Joshua, okay, I heard you. I received your lament. Now it's time for you to stop this pity party. Stand up. I love that. I love counseling people and I love meeting people in their sorrow because they need people to walk in the valley with them. But at some point in time, the best counsel is stand up, get out of the valley. And that's what the Lord says to Joshua, stand up. It's time for you to stop lamenting. And then the Lord explains to Joshua why they were just defeated at Ai. It had nothing to do with the men of Ai or their little army. He says in verse 11, Israel has sinned. That's why they were defeated. They violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They have taken some of what was set apart. They stolen, deceived, and put those things in their own belongings. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. And they, they will turn their backs and run from their enemies because they have, set a, they have been set apart for destruction. And the Lord says to Israel, I'm not going to be with you unless you remove from among you that which was set apart. So God says, look, you were defeated because of your sin. Now, Joshua, you may not understand this, but I take that very seriously. You got to deal with the sin or you're going to remain in defeat. Here's the lesson. God always, always 
takes your sin more seriously than you take it. Always. God takes your sin more seriously than you take it. You, you and I have this amazing ability to be like Achim. We sin against God by taking what, what belongs to him. Right? We sin and we hide it. We don't deal with it. We hide it. Achan stole what belonged to the Lord and he, he hid it under his bed, underneath his tent. He just hid it. And you have this ability to do this. You hide in your heart stuff that you have not confessed and dealt with. You compartmentalize your sin. And you think it's okay. Like, no one knows. It's not okay. Because God knows. And nothing can be hidden from him. And God will always take the sin that resides in your heart more seriously than you take it. Because God knows that sin will destroy you if you don't deal with it. That's why the author of Hebrews goes out of his way to make this point. He says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It is a terrifying thing. To fall into the hands of a living God with your sins still attached to you. So God, he, he says to Joshua, you got to deal with the sin. And, in, and basically, that's what happened in, in the rest of chapter 7. So, so God says to Joshua, you got to figure out who sinned, who took what belonged to me, and you got to deal with that, and then I'll absolve you of the sin, and then we can move on. And, and so Joshua, the next day, he calls the entire nation of Israel together. He says, I need all of the tribal leaders of the 12 tribes to gather with me. Within the tribes, I need the clan heads, the clan leaders to gather with them. Within the clan heads, I need the fathers of the families to gather behind them. We're going to figure out who sinned against the Lord. So we've got all these leaders now gathered together, and they begin this process of determining who who, who sinned? And I, I don't know how they did it. I don't know if they cast lots. I don't know if it was the high priest. Because if you recall, back in Exodus, the high priest had this, in Leviticus, they had this, he had this very elaborate outfit. And, and he wore this, this amazing uh, breastplate, had all these stones representing Israel. But and there were pockets inside it. And inside the pocket of the breastplate, there's a couple of stones. And, and whenever they needed to determine what the will of God was, and it wasn't clear in Scripture, they would ask the Lord, and he would go in, pull out a stone you know, like yes or no. It was, a, it was like a magic eight ball, but different. And, 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 and so maybe it was that they were, high priest was using the Uman and the Thuman to, to determine this. Regardless, they start with the tribes, 12 tribes. Who is it? Tribe of Judah. Everybody else stand aside. All right, within the tribe of Judah, bring forth the clan heads. Who is it? Oh, it's this clan. All the other clan leaders step aside. Now this clan, I need all the fathers of the families of this clan. Who is it? Now at this point in time, you've got to imagine a sigh of relief from the rest of the Israelite leaders, but within the families of this particular clan of Judah, they must have been terrified. And Achan was chosen. It was Achan. 
And in verse 19, Joshua confronts Achan and he, he makes this statement. It's a fascinating statement. I want you to pay attention to the words. So Joshua says to Achan, my son, showing the relationship that he had with him, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make a confession to him. I urge you, tell me what you've done and don't hide anything from me. Why did Joshua use the language, give glory to the Lord by confessing your sin? Give glory to the Lord, confess your sin. Because it does glorify God. When you agree with a holy God, what a holy God already knows. That's all confession is. It's you finally telling God what he already knows about you. That's why we have to make a good confession to the Lord. That's why we read, when you confess your sins, God, who is good and faithful, he hears that and he's willing to cleanse you from your sins. Bring glory to God. Man. Confess what God already knows about you. Make your confession. Tell me what you've done. Don't hide anything. And, and Achan did, verse 20, he did. He said to Joshua, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And here's what I did. When I saw, notice the path. When I saw among the spoils, a beautiful cloak from Babylon. Beautifully imported coat. When I saw that. And then I saw some silver and a bar of gold. He said, I desired it. I coveted it. And I took it. I saw. I lusted. Desired. And I took. Does that remind you of any other Bible passage? I saw it looked good to me. And no, I wasn't supposed to take it. I desired it. And so I took it. And Achan stole what belonged to the Lord. He's the one that brought destruction upon the people. And sure enough, what happened was Joshua sends out the scouts and they go to Achan's tent and underneath the tent, there's the beautiful coat and hidden in the coat is the silver and, and the gold and they bring it back to Joshua and, and then Joshua says, I want you to collect everything that belongs to Achan, bring his family, bring all the animals that belong to him. I want you to follow me. And he took them to this place, this little valley where everybody could see. He gathers the nation of Israel around Achan and his family in this valley. It's called the Valley of Achor. It means the Valley of Trouble. Verse 25, Joshua says, there in the Valley of Trouble, why have you brought us trouble? Why, Achan, have you brought us trouble? Today the Lord will bring trouble upon you. And so all Israel stoned them to death. They burned their bodies. They threw stones on them. 
They raised over him a large pile of rocks that remain still today as Joshua was writing this. And then and only then did the Lord turn away his burning anger. Therefore, that place is called the Valley of Achor still today. End of the story. Not the Hollywood ending you may have wanted. That was it for Ake. It was absolutely necessary for that to be the ending because see, now you, you see the analogy, right? Between Achan and a man called Adam in Genesis 3. Well, you, you know the story, right? God creates everything and, and he creates this garden and he places Adam and Eve in the garden and, and everything is innocent and everything is pure and God only gives Adam one command. It's like, just can't eat from the tree there in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just, just don't do that. If you eat of that tree, surely you will die. Death will come as a result of you doing that. And then there was a day and there's Eve and she's by the tree and here comes this old slimy serpent and he comes slithering up to Eve and he says, hey, hey, that tree that you're looking at, <laughs> that fruit looks pretty good. Now remind me again what God said. Eve said, well, you must not eat it. You can't even touch it or you'll die. Oh, come on, surely. God's not going to kill you. Surely you won't die. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful, that it was desirable. She saw and she desired. So she took some of it and ate it. And she also gave it to her husband, Adam, who ate it. Because just like Eve, Adam saw, Adam desired, Adam took. And death entered God's creation in that moment. And from that moment, every single thing that is wrong with God's creation is the result of Adam's consequence. And all of the pain and all of the heartache that you have experienced in this life is the result of Adam seeing and lusting and taking. Because when Adam sinned, you sinned. We were in him. And everything became wrong with this world as a consequence of Adam's sin. And just as Achan's sin affected all of Israel, Adam's sin has affected all of creation. And I'm so very glad. I'm just so very glad that the Bible doesn't end with the Old Testament. Because if the Bible ended with the Old Testament, I had no idea. I would not be here. There's no way I would spend my life trying to tell you news that isn't good because all I would have is bad news the good news is that another Adam showed up and he was better than the first one because when the second Adam shows up and he is tempted in every way and when Satan does what he did to Adam, to Jesus, hey, Jesus, 
why don't you look and lust and take? Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do it. Because I'm going to bring glory to God and be obedient and faithful. To the point where I'm actually going to go to the cross. And I'm going to finally undo what Achan did and what Adam did and what you have done. I'm going to undo it. The Apostle Paul records this in Romans 5 in one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. Talking about Adam, the first, and Jesus, the second, and the greater. So then... As through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. When Adam sinned, you sinned. Death came to you. As, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one act of, of, of righteousness, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that's Adam, so through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And that is you if you belong to Jesus. Because what Jesus did is he went to the cross for you and he took all of the sin and shame, and he took it upon himself, and he died to pay for it. Why? Because God takes your sin serious. God take, takes your sin so serious, it demanded the death of his perfect son. And Jesus paid the price for your sin on the cross. By that one act of obedience, anyone who places saving faith in Jesus will be declared righteous. Amen. Because Jesus is greater. And that's why I, I just love it when the Bible uses this analogy. And I love it when James is writing to the church and he's describing Jesus this way. And he says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, God's going to resist the pride, but... but he is going to give grace to the humble. There's a greater grace. There is a grace that's greater than all of your sin. And that grace comes as a loving gift from God the Father when you place saving faith in Jesus so that in the end, it is because of the greater grace of Jesus Christ that we do not have to suffer the consequences of our disobedience. And that's the gospel. And if there's anybody here today that has not received Jesus by faith, confessing their sin and pleading with Christ to be their deliverer, then one day you will stand before a holy God with your sin still attached to you and God forbid you in that moment. Now you may not like this, but the Bible is true. God will be glorified in the eternal damnation of those who die with their sin still attached to them. My friend, don't be one of those people. There's greater grace. There's greater grace. Yes, 
we need to lament when we sin. But at some point in time, stand up. Seek forgiveness. Be delivered. Receive the grace. And then get back on track. How is it that a young man keeps his way pure? Psalm 119, by following the word of God. Go back to what you know. Claim the promises of God. And start living victoriously once again. You can do that because of the greater grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let me pray with you. Let me pray. Father, yes, sin affects more than us. It affects everyone around us. Yes, our sin demands condemnation and death, but Jesus died for us. And yes, we have all tasted failure and defeat. We've been there. We've been in the valley. But Jesus went to the valley as well. And he went to the cross for us. And he paid the price. Father, it's time for us to stand up, to confess, to repent, and to continue to live victoriously. May we do so. But may we never, ever forget how desperately we need the Lord every day and in every way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.